I'm delighted to introduce our speaker today. Uh, James T. McCollum was born in Urbana, Illinois, to Dr. John Haskell and Vashti Cromwell McCollum on Christmas Eve in 1934. He says that for the most part, he had the fairly uneventful life of a typical white middle-class child in a college-educated family, for the most part, uh, in Champaign, Illinois. His father was a professor at the University of Illinois, and his mother was a housewife, and in later years, she was also a world traveler, and we heard some about some of her adventures this morning. Um, in fourth grade, he became involved in a church-state battle involving sectarian religious classes in the Champaign Public Schools, which culminated in an 8 to 1 landmark decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, for which we recently passed the 70th anniversary on March 8th, which uh, Jim and Betty pointed out to me was also International Women's Day, so that's kind of cool that that, um, that, that Vashti McCollum got that additional tribute. Um, Jim graduated from the University of Illinois with a bachelor's degree in geology in 1956 and then got his JD from the University of Illinois Law School in August 1962. He was admitted to the New York Bar in 63 and he practiced in Rochester, New York for 34 years thereafter. And in 1966, he was admitted to practice before the US Supreme Court. In 1995, he retired to uh, their, uh, the old McCollum home place in Emerson, Arkansas, and he worked for another 11 years at Southern Arkansas University in the IT department before retiring again. During that time, he founded the Arkansas chapter of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Subsequently, he has earned an Associate of Applied Science degree in Agriculture at Southern Arkansas University, and he expects to earn his BA in History there this May. Lifetime learning, I love it. He is married to the Reverend Betty Grace McCollum, who is a UU minister who's spoken here in our pulpit on several occasions, and who for several years running now has brought students from her World Religions Club for our local celebration, so many of you know her from that. Um, and she's also served as a panel moderator for that event. Um, in October of 2016, they launched SAU's own celebration of World Religions and International Cultures Day, and we have been uh, delighted to, to go up there to represent the, the Unitarian Universalists for, for both years. Um, they have both also been active with both the county and state Democratic Party Committee for about 20 years. Will you please help me welcome Jim McCollum. occasionally deliver a sermon, and the instructor who was in charge of it would time them. He figured if they couldn't say what needed to be said in 15 minutes, he was out of there. And he left. So when Betty preaches, I time her. And she's probably going to time me today, and I'll try to keep it within 15 minutes. One thing about getting cataract surgery, you need readers afterwards. <laughs> Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Jefferson, who inspired this clause, 
said in an 18-2 letter to the Danbury Baptist, Baptist that it establishes the separation of church and state. The Christian right, however, insists on noting that the actual words separation of church and state do not appear in the Constitution. Ergo, they contend that no establishment, that the no establishment clause allows some flexibility on how religion, i.e. Christianity, relates to an otherwise secular government. But the U.S. Supreme Court has consistently held since the 1879 Reynolds case that Jefferson's metaphor accurately captures the meaning of the First Amendment. But particularly starting in the 1940s, the interpretation of this clause has generated a great deal of controversy and litigation. Clearly, clearly the U.S. Constitution was designed to construct a government neutral to religion, all religion. The only references to religion in the Constitution speak, of, or speak only of neutrality. Article 6 states that there shall be no religious test for office and allows either an oath or affirmation for office. So what does this have to do with the right to go to hell? Well, at this point, a little background is in order. I was the eldest of three children born and raised in the university community of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. My father, Dr. John Pascoe McCollum, was a professor at the University of Illinois and was one of 11 children born and raised in rural Arkansas on a farm just three miles from the Louisiana border where my wife and I now reside. By the time I was ready to attend college, by the time, I'm sorry, by the time he was ready to attend college, he had had all the religion he could stomach and was a confirmed atheist. My mother, Vashti Cromwell McCollum, was the younger of two children of Arthur and Ruth Cromwell, raised in Rochester, New York. Her religious upbringing was fairly neutral, albeit liberal towards religion, allowing her to seek her own course. She never described herself as an atheist, but later on described herself as a humanist. Upon marrying John McCollum, a young instructor at the university, religion was not something either of them found necessary to deal with. That would change, of course, when uh, in the course of starting a family. In the fall of 1943, when I entered fourth grade in the public schools of Champaign, Illinois, I was confronted by a teacher who was soliciting registration in a Protestant Christian Bible class to be held during school hours in the school building. Albeit participation in the program was ostensibly voluntary, the public school teachers were strongly encouraged to have their students participate. They even got stars on the door if they had 100% attendance. Because my parents objected to this invasion of the public schools by sectarian religious activity, I was not allowed initially to participate. However, however after much pressure on me and my parents by the teacher and by, my, by me on my parents as well, 
I was eventually allowed to attend these classes for the balance of the school year. This, of course, was not without serious misgivings on the part of my parents. But since religion had not been a subject of conversation in our household up to that point, I was understandably curious about the content of these classes. Interestingly, upon my joining the class already in progress, I found that these basically Sunday school Bible classes were pitched to almost a kindergarten level and made little sense to me as a sophisticated fourth grader. <laughs> Further, these stories appeared to me, and this without any, any uh, uh, coaching by my parents, by the way. This is strictly my own observation. Accordingly, next, the next year, I, as well as my parents, were not the least bit desirous of my further participation. This resulted in my being subjected to indignities by the school and some abuse from my peers. The former consisted of being placed at a desk in the hall and or being exiled to the teacher's lounge, uh, both of which were normally used as money, uh, methods of punishing miscreant children. As there was uh, some, also there was some harassment and unfriendly confrontations with some of my peers. After unsuccessful attempts to deal with the problem through administrative channels, my mother, Vasti Cromwell McCollum, with assistance of the Unitarian Minister in Urbana, secured an attorney and some funding from a Chicago Jewish Businessmen's Organization for legal action. Accordingly, in the summer of 1945, she filed a mandamus action against the school board to compel it to terminate the program. She lost before the trial panel of three judges in the Champaign County Circuit Court in the spring of 1946 and again on appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court. But the U.S. Supreme Court granted certiorari and eventually ruled eight to one in her favor in the spring of 1948. This was a landmark decision because of two important things. First, the High Court ruled that a school district taxpayer did indeed have the right uh, to uh, have standing to sue. Without that, the, course could, the case could go no further. More importantly is that this was the first case of impression in U.S. constitutional law that held the several states accountable to the strictures of the Establishment of Religion Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution by virtue of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. As Justice Hugo Black stated in his majority opinion in the case, quoting from the dicta that he had written in the Everson case one year earlier, the Establishment of Religion of the First Amendment means at least this. Neither a state nor the federal government can set up a church. Neither can pass laws which is one religion, hate all religions, or prefer one religion over another. Neither can force nor influence a person to go to or remain away from church against his will, or force him to profess a belief or disbelief in any religion. No person can be punished for entertaining or professing religious beliefs or disbeliefs, for church attendance or non-attendance. 
No tax in any amount, large or small, can be levied to support any religious activities or institutions, whatever they may be called, or whatever form they may adopt to teach or practice religion. Neither the state nor the federal government can openly or secretly participate in the affairs of any religious organizations or groups and vice versa. In the words of Jefferson, the clause against establishment of religion by law was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state. Pretty broad statement, I'd say. Too broad for some of the other justices who also agreed to, uh, with my mother. An article in the Progressive upon the advent of the decision stated in the headline, the Supreme Court has just given little Terry McCollum the right to go to hell. <laughs> my middle name is Terry and that's what I was called in those days. <clears throat> Much has been made of the hassles to which my family and I were subjected uh, leading up to the court's decision and in its aftermath including the necessity of my being sent to live with my grandparents in Rochester, New York to attend a private school. Attempts were made to fire my father from his professorship at the university, fortunately protected by his tenured position. Although his promotion to full professor was held up 10 to 15 years on account of my mother's suit. But my mother's adjunct position as an instructor was indeed terminated. But as I look back on those times, my family's and my experiences were comparatively minor considering the abject misery perpetrated on many people, particularly children, on the basis of ethnicity and religious beliefs. I was given, at comparatively little cost to me, the opportunity to witness and understand the discriminatory effects suffered by various minorities in this country, far worse than anything I ever had. It allowed uh, my brother, Daniel. Uh, my little brother, Errol, was too young to be involved in any of this, so it was particularly myself and, and Dan. It has allowed us a valuable perspective on the importance of human rights and the diversity of humankind. Sages have observed that experiencing major challenges in life allows one to appreciate the good and important things in life. A close-knit and stable family environment helped us as well. Rancor was totally absent in our home, which gave Dan and me a warm refuge at the end of a stressful day. I might add also that albeit mom's suit did have the potential of adversely affecting my father's career, he stood by her throughout the ordeal and never once complained or indicated his lack of support. My father remained at the University of Illinois until his retirement many years later. Dan graduated from Illinois in 1958 and eventually became the longest serving mayor of Champaign up to that point, the second known Democrat and the first known atheist to hold a job. <laughs> he is a published author of several books, one of which, The Lord Was Not on Trial, tells the well-documented story of the case. 
Little brother Errol obtained an engineering degree and became a successful entrepreneur. I became an attorney and maintained a 34-year law practice in Rochester, New York. I am now a student at Southern Arkansas University in my second retirement and expect to graduate next month with a BA in history. Some people never give up. <laughs> my mother returned to college, interrupted by marriage and family, to complete her bachelor's degree and went on for a master's. She served three years as the president of the American Humanist Association. Her book, One Woman's Fight, is a memoir of her pursuit of the cause. In her later years, she became a world traveler, visiting all seven of the world's continents. She even became trapped in the Amazon jungle for a couple of weeks on one of her excursions. My father, commenting upon the recounting of her experiences of one of her travels, opined afterwards, the woman is fearless. And indeed she was. Thank you.